Okay, well, praise the Lord, everyone. Uh, happy Sunday morning. We'll see you in church next week. Actually, we, Pastor Paul has provided a picture that I have here this morning so that I can see you other than in your pajamas or whatever your, whatever your attire might be this morning. I want to talk to you again and, and uh, want to encourage you uh, by the Word of God. And I want to start in Exodus chapter 12. I know we've looked at it a little bit. We're still talking about the faith of God and faith in the blood of Jesus. And so I think in Exodus 12, you have such a great picture of that because when the pandemic hit Egypt, they applied the blood to the lintel and the doorposts of their house and got in under the blood. And when they were under the blood, they were protected from the plagues that fell upon the Egyptians. And, and, and then, of course, you can always relate that again to Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty God. I will save the Lord. You're my refuge. You're my fortress. You're my God in whom I trust. It's all about what you're believing and what you're saying and pleading the blood of Jesus. And I think um, when I look back over this past couple of months, what it has helped us to do is identify where we are in God, because I find it so easy to believe what Jesus did in the past or to believe what he's about to do in the future, but he's a right now God. Hebrews 11.1 says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the title deed to the things that you've been believing God for. And so when you're operating in faith, Social distancing is not, I mean, you can do it to respect others, but you're not in fear because you're walking by faith. You believe in God that when you lay hands on the sick, they'll recover, not that you're going to pass them some germ or disease. And so it's good to, it's good to locate ourselves. And so in Exodus chapter 12, you know, what, what I'm reminded of in Exodus 12, and I want to talk about the laws of the law of faith, the law of confession, laws of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that everything goes from order to disorder. And I think sometimes we think that we've advanced as a society. I heard somebody say one day, we don't spank our children anymore. We give them time out because spanking them is barbaric. And and, and it can be in some cases, but really, if you look at society today and look at what we've created, maybe God knew what he was talking about. Just just maybe. Anyway, everything in the law of thermodynamics says everything goes from order to disorder. And so when you look at that, you're thinking, well, look at what we've arrived at, you know, technologically and all of those kind of things. But back here in the book of Exodus, Egypt was the, the pearl of the world. They had technology far beyond our, what we, until they discovered the Rosetta Stone, and, and learned how to decipher the, the Egyptian hieroglyphics, they had no idea uh, the advancements that the Egyptians had made. But once they did that, the place erupted with excavations and, and diggings and scientific findings. And, you know, they found that they, that they, for example, the Egyptians had a surgeon general, and his job was to keep the, the, the people healthy. And they did eye surgery. They removed tumors from bodies. They, they, you know, and they've excavated a lot of these things, did brain surgery. They had pharmacies and they had puffers 
like we have today and all of that. And they had running water and they had, they had meat inspectors that examined the meat and they, like they, they had it going on. They, 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 like, I mean, just look at what they built all those years ago without what we have for technology today. And you get a totally different, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were so careful to embalm people. And they would take the human brain out through the nostrils so that they wouldn't have to put a cut on the body. Like these guys had, they had intelligent doctors and lawyers and physicians and all of those kind of things. They, they were a very advanced society. But when the plagues of Egypt came, the Surgeon General, whose job it was to keep the people healthy, none of the people in the country, in the land, their, their finest, their finest uh, uh, doctors and so on, surgeons, couldn't do anything. The only thing that kept people safe, including some of the Egyptians, by the way, was the blood applied to the doorposts. And it's like the sign of the cross. You apply the blood to your life, and it'll keep you safe. It's that secret place of the Most High that the Lord talked about, that you could live in safety. Come on, think about what Psalm 91 says. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. Now, if you really believe in that, you weren't hiding at home with a mask on your face. Now, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying that we need to get our believers fixed. We've, we've got a job to do. We've got to get ourselves, you know, so that we're not make-believers. We're believers. I mean, again, we believe that for the rapture of the church, that the Lord's going to come and catch the church up off the earth, but, but, but you can't keep you through a pandemic. Like, you, you know, we're the ones that are supposed to be out there ministering to the fearful, not the ones hiding in unbelief. And so we really need to re-examine ourselves. And um, so I did some study into the early church. One of the books I'm reading by Lillian B. Yeomans uh, talks about how the early church operated. And I just want to read a little bit to you, an excerpt from that book. It says here, it was prophesied some 700 years before the first advent, before Christ was ever born, by the prophet Isaiah, that, he, that Jesus would come to bear the sins of the world. Not only the sins of the world, but their infirmities, their sicknesses, it, all of that happened on the cross, which was fulfilled, healing all that were oppressed of the devil and commissioning his followers. Listen, commissioning his followers Come on, think about what it says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. These former treaties, O Theopolis, I'm writing unto you everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. He fully intended for the church to continue what he started. Come on, healing all, the, all that were oppressed of the devil, laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover. I, and they had it going on in the early church. I just want to read a little bit to you. So it says that he fully intended his followers to carry on this great work after his ascension, promising to be with them even till the end of the age. In the book of Acts, the apostles, we learn literally that they understood how faithful, how faithfully they executed this command. At least for the first three centuries of the church, historical examples of, of the, these believers closely followed what the Lord had taught them. Listen to the following quotation from one of the best known fathers of the early church. His name was Irenaeus 
dated 180 AD, 180 AD. This is what he said. He said he's drawing a comparison between the heretics and the true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said they, <laughs> this was amazing to me, because I realized that there's a culture of unbelief in our nation, and there's a culture of unbelief in our church. It's kind of like when you look again at Acts chapter 3 at the gates, beautiful, you see a guy that the, that the church or the people of that day, you call it the church or not, I call it the church. I think the church has always been here in one form or another. But the church of the day brought that man to the gate beautiful every single day. For 40 years, they dressed him up, put his clothes on him, and carried him to the gate, but couldn't get him in. Brought him to the gate beautiful, but the very fact that it's a gate indicates that there's something on the other side of the gate. There's something on the other side of the gate. And when I read that, I thought, you know, this is the way we've been as a church. We get all dressed up and we come to the service, but we never enter in. Oh, we'll sing the songs, and, and, but we never seem to get over. It, it requires faith to get you over into the place where he went running and leaping and praising God and took off into the service running and leaping and praising God. And, and we sit like frozen popsicles, uh, hoping that God will do something like the guy laying by the pool of Bethesda. He just laid there for 38 years, waiting for a move of the spirit of God. And Jesus finally said to him, pick up your bed, walk, just act on, act on the word of God and watch what happens. And so, and, and so as we look at the early church, they, they didn't question We've gotten so intellectual, we question everything. They didn't question uh, the Lord. They just went and did what he said. Anyway, let me read this. This is a quotation from one of the best-known fathers in the church in 180 AD. He said, those heretics, listen, this is, this is what he called heretics. They cannot even confer sight to the blind, nor hearing to the deaf, or chase away all sorts of demons, nor can they cure the weak or the lame or the paralytic or those who have been distressed with any other part of the body, nor can they furnish effective remedies for those external accidents which may occur. In other words, you get a broken arm, you don't go to the doctor, you went to the church and they put it back together in the name of Jesus. This is what they were doing. Somehow, over, over this last century or two, we've totally developed a culture of unbelief. But anyway, let's read on here. He said, those external accidents which may occur, and so far away are they from being able to raise the dead, they can't even, he's saying, this is 180 AD. He said, they can't even raise the dead. And he was shocked by their unbelief. <laughs> As the Lord raised them and the apostles raised them, Frequently, it's been done by the brother Lud here. The entire church, in particular at that locality, in treating with much fasting and prayer, the, the spirit of the dead man has re, dead man has returned to answer the to, to answers the prayers of the saints. But they don't even believe. He said, we, "We've done we do it, but they don't even believe that it's it's a possibility that it can't even be done." Now check yourself here. You know, I, I check myself as I'm reading these things and realize 
how far away we've, we've gotten from, from reality because of our intellectual self. It's, it's what happened to Adam in the garden. Adam lost his revelation knowledge and, and required sense knowledge and needed to be educated, and Satan began to educate him. It took him 900 years, but he finally killed him with education. And so anyway, it says here, in another place, he says, others again heal the sick by laying on of hands upon them, and they're made whole. Yes, moreover, as I have said, the dead, even those have been raised up and remain among us all these many years. Like these guys were out there getting it done. It would appear that praying for the sick and anointing them with oil has never ceased to be practiced, even through the first seven centuries of the church. Well, look, go look at look up the life of... Um, of St. Patrick and some of these other guys, they got a revelation that God is the healer and not mankind. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 12, the finest doctors in the land could not heal or do anything, but the blood of Jesus. Well, let's, let's read a few verses here. Exodus chapter 12, verse one, the Lord spoke unto Moshe, unto Moses and Aaron on that day, saying this month, is the beginning of months for you. In other words, I'm starting a new calendar for you, a sacred calendar for you. It's going to be the March, April, the, the time of Passover, and it's going to be your calendar. It's not going to be your enemy's calendar. You're not going to be dictated to by his time frame. Why? Because faith is now. If a doctor says it's going to take you several months to get healed, you're not bound by that because now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. You are not bound by time. Time is not your master. You are the master of your time, according to what he says here. He said, this month will be the beginning of months for you, the first month of the year for you. Speak unto the children of the congregation of Israel, saying, on the tenth of this month, you shall take every man a lamb according to his house, the fathers of the lamb for every house. So they would go and they got a lamb. And they brought the lamb into the house and they would examine the lamb because it had to be perfect. It had to be without spot, without blemish. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, when he takes away the sin of the world, sin and sickness are synonymous terms. So when you got born again, not only were your sins forgiven, but all your healing was put in place as well. And so they would examine this lamb for four days and then kill it in the evening. Well, three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus said it is finished and gave up the ghost. But they took the lamb into the house and they examined it for four days indicating that Jesus would be examined for that time, that Caiaphas looked at him and, and Ananias looked at him and Herod the king examined him. And finally, Pilate said, I can find no fault with him. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And his blood has never lost its power. And when you think about the blood of Jesus, think about your own human blood. It flows through your bloodstream every day taking life and health to all of the cells and tissues in your body, every organ in your body. It also picks up excrement and takes it to the proper places for its disposal. It's cleansing you every day. You've got white corpuscles in there that are fighting and running off diseases when they try to attach themselves to your body. And this is, what, this is why Jesus said, my blood was the perfect sacrifice because it'll cleanse you every single day from sin and sickness, disease, Again, Psalm 91, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. How does that happen? 
I will say of the Lord, you're my refuge, you're my fortress. See, what are you saying? Because when your, belie- your believer is hooked up, your believer, your, <laughs> rather, your, your speaker is hooked up to your believer. This is my speaker. What I'm really believing in my heart is going to come out my mouth. And so that's good because now I can, as it says in communion, now I can examine myself and find out if I'm really walking in faith, really believing what was done at Calvary was enough for me. Amen? Okay. So they brought the lamb in and they examined it for four days. And then at the, in the evening, between the evenings, they killed it. And they took the blood, put it in a bowl. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 14, 15, 16. Put the blood in the bowl with hyssop and slapped it on the lintel and the doorpost. Blood and water flowed because hyssop holds the water, the reed that holds the water. It's also the drink that they gave him when he was on the cross. So they, they applied the blood to the doors and the lintels of their house. They applied the blood of Jesus to their lives. And then it says that they had to go in. This was not social distancing. They went in the house and ate the word. They had to eat it all before morning and be ready to leave. And when they, when they killed it, it's interesting too, because it's called the helmeted sacrifice. They put it on a pomegranate stick and uh, I think cedar, uh, cedar crossbar and held the lamb open over a fire, the hellfire judgment. And they took the intestines out and put it over top of the lamb's head. It was called the crowned sacrifice. And again, it's a type and a shadow of the Lord Jesus. But when you think about this, Psalm 105 and verse 37, you need to picture this in your mind. Psalm 105 and verse 37 says, they went out with silver and gold. Well, stop and look at that. They were owed 400 years back wages for their slavery. And, you know, Exodus, I think 12 says that they borrowed from the Egyptians. But when you read it, they didn't borrow it. It was theirs. They demanded it. And they took all of the wealth of Egypt. Now, you think about Egypt, what we, what I just told you about the discovery of the Rosetta Stone and all that. And then think about what it is now, a flea-infested <laughs> place in the desert where it's not even safe to go as a tourist because you could get shot. I mean, it's like, and so that great, the great kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And it started out, I mean, even in Nebuchadnezzar's day, his kingdom was the kingdom of gold, the head of gold, and then it disintegrated down to the feet of the Roman, the revived Roman Empire, part iron and part clay. So things don't go from, from, from disordered order or evolve into something better. They go the opposite way. And so we, and we see that in Egypt. But anyway, when they left, Psalm 537 says they left with all the silver and the gold. And that reminds me of what the book of Proverbs says about this last day, a financial inversion, the wealth of the wicked being laid up in store for the just. And by the way, you know, people get the idea that what's been going on here is a sign of the tribulation period. This is not the tribulation period. And God didn't do this. Man, man brought all this on himself. And, and the Antichrist is trying to manifest himself and trying to bring fear so that he can control... Fear is ultimately what will control the world during the tribulation period. But if you really want to understand the tribulation period, you need to read Revelation chapter 15 and Revelation chapter 16. Because my Bible says that Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are addressing the church. 
Revelation 4 and verse 1, he says, come up here and I'll show you what's going to happen after this. The church is gone from Revelation chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 19. But when you read about the tribulation period, do you think this is something? How would you like to have 100-pound hailstones flying under the sky? You know, and, and then people cursing God. People, you know, every, every judgment has a pause in between it where people have an opportunity to repent, and they don't. They curse God. They hate God. How sick and how far away from, from humanity have, have people gotten by that time? So this hasn't been a pleasant experience. But again, my Bible says that even talking about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God. Nebuchadnezzar's statue from the head of gold down to the feet of clay and iron. The Bible says there was a stone cut without hands, the virgin birth. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. That stone built without hands, the Bible says in Daniel, that it hit the, that statue in its feet and all of the kingdoms fell. And it says that stone became a great mountain and filled the earth. And so we're not looking to escape and get out of here according to Romans, according to Romans 8 and verse 19. My Bible says that all of creation is waiting for a manifestation of the sons of God. I was just reading about the sons of God to you out of the history of the early church from 180 to 300 AD and the miracles and the signs and the wonders. That's what the world is waiting for. And that is what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is not doom and gloom. What's going to happen next is a glory. This God's glory will cover the earth. A, a glory, a glorious, a glorious outpouring of his spirit. Global glory is about to take place on the earth. And I, for one, want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a spectator, but I realize that I need to fix my believer. I, I need to make sure that when I come into a church service, I'm not sitting outside the gate, beautiful, looking all dressed up. It, but never enter in. in. Um, um, anyway, they went out with silver and gold, and there wasn't a feeble one, Psalm 105, 37. There wasn't a sick one. Three million people that had been in slavery for over 400 years, and slavery is hard physical labor. Can you imagine the aches and the pains and the bruising and the, and the things that would be in your body working seven days a week? making bricks and laboring in the hot Egyptian sun, what your physical condition would be like. And yet when they applied the blood, listen, when they applied the blood of Jesus, which is what it represents, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When they applied the blood to their lives, they escaped and walked out in divine life. Not a feeble one amongst their tribes. They weren't carrying like some of the old movies. They weren't carrying stretchers with feeble old people on it. They were walking out in health. They were walking out in prosperity. And the end of the age, the church is not going to be some defeated, whipped, beaten down thing that barely makes it into heaven. The church is going out, a glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so I don't care. It's not that I don't care, but I see what's going on in the world today. But all it is for me is a wake-up call. All it is for me is Ephesians 5.14. Wake up, church, and arise from among the dead, and Christ will give you light. It's Isaiah chapter 60. Rise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In the world is a darkness and a gross darkness upon the people, but 
God's glory shall be seen upon you. Kings and influential people will come to the brightness of your rising. Romans 8, 19. Come on, they'll come. Come on, your heart will reverence and be enlarged because the abundance of the Gentile nations will be converted. The biggest harvest of souls this world has ever seen is, is coming on the stage, started already, and we don't want to miss it. We do not want to miss it. But we need to be like blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Let's go. Let's go. I got him on my phone here. Hey, hey, blind Bartimaeus, where are you here on my phone? Okay, Mark chapter 10. I love this chapter. I love every chapter. But I like verse 45. Mark 10 to verse 45. You got your Bible there, Mark 10 to 45. It says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So by the blood of Jesus... Hallelujah, that blood that's in, in you and on you right now, that blood that's cleansing you of everything, that you know, all of the diseases and things that come upon the world. Come on, he even said that in Exodus chapter 15. He said, none of the diseases that came upon the Egyptians shall come upon you because I am Jehovah, your healer. I'm Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Come on. So it says, I gave my life a ransom for many. Then he came to Jericho. And, and it, it doesn't say what he did when he was there. It says he came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd. How large? Well, one time they followed him for three days and he had to fight, feed 5,000 men plus the women and children. So maybe 25, 30,000 people. So when it says a large crowd, don't picture a few people with bathrobes on running around in sandals. Don't picture Jesus like that anytime. So it says they were leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd. Bartimaeus, the son of Tim Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the side of the road. Now think about him. Think about him. All these good people in Jericho, they, obviously he's blind, so somebody had to lead him there. They had to go and get him dressed, go and get him cleaned up, and bring him to church. Or bring him to, to the meeting place. In this case, bring him to a place where he could earn a living by begging. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the side of the road. When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, he began to cry out, Yeshua ben David, have hesed on me. Jesus, you son of David, show me covenant kindness. Remember the covenant kindness over in 2 Samuel chapter 9? There was a man over there named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means shameful thing. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. King Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the rightful heir to King Saul's throne. And Jonathan was dead, and so Mephibosheth was the only living heir. And so David, being the king now over in Hebron and, and now in Jerusalem, his job would have been to find Mephibosheth and kill him. But he didn't do that because he had a covenant back in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. He made a covenant with Jonathan and they exchanged weaponry and they exchanged the position. Jonathan became uh, the, the commoner and made David to be the next king of Israel. And that whole covenant exchange, which we won't get into at the moment, but you need to see it. They exchanged weapons. They exchanged coats. You know, uh, Jonathan took off his purple robe, his royal robe. 
and David took off his sheepskin coat, and they, ex- they, exchanged, them. they exchanged weapons. David gave up his slingshot and got a sword and a spear, the royal sword, the royal spear, signifying a change in position. So now we get to Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. This guy named Mephibosheth is the rightful heir still. And so you'd have thought that the custom of the day for the kings was to kill the heir so that they wouldn't be threatened by the, at the throne. David says, is there any left of the house of Saul that I can show Hesed to? Hesed is covenant kindness. It's beyond mercy. It's beyond, it's, it's something. And then he said, I want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. God is like, I want to show mercy. I want to show Hesed for Jesus' sake. And so Jesus already paid for all the mercy, all the grace, all the healing that you'll ever need is all wrapped up in that. But anyway, Mephibosheth, this shameful thing, was living in Lodabar. Lodabar is a desert place. Lodabar, lo means no, and debar means word. He was living in a place where there was no word being preached. He was in a hopeless place, just like many outside the walls of the church are now. And we, and, and, but they're coming. They're coming. But anyway, Mephibosheth was living in Lodabar with a, a guy named Makar, a salesman, it's the type of the Antichrist spirit trying to keep him away from his destiny. And when David found out about it, he sent his chariots over and she said, go, go get Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was picked up. He, he couldn't walk, by the way. He was lame in his feet. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 4, you find out he was five years old when Jonathan and Saul were killed on Mount Gilboa. And the nurse thinking that David was going to come and kill him right away, got him on her donkey and took off and dropped him. And I don't know if he landed on his head or what happened, but he was lame in both of his feet. So now he's living in Lodabar, a place of no word, and he's crippled. He can't walk. Just like you and I were before we got saved. We couldn't, you know, that's why the Bible says to walk out, walk out our salvation. You got to walk it out. But he couldn't walk. He couldn't do anything for himself. David goes and gets him, brings him in into the court, they, they pick him up, and he's thinking, here, this is the last day of my life. He's brought into the courts of David, and he falls onto the ground and says, what am I that you would pay such attention to such a dead dog as me? And yet David ignored the whole thing and said, he said, I want Ziba, one of the servants, I want you to go and get everything that pertained to Saul and give it back to Mephibosheth. But as far as Mephibosheth goes, he will eat at the king's table continually. So he brought him out of darkness into this glorious light. And you read the life of Mephibosheth is a pretty powerful story. All the way through to 2 Samuel, read about his life and, and, and the life that God gave him through covenant kindness, through covenant mercy. And so here's blind Bartimaeus calling out, Yeshua ben David, show me that same covenant kindness that, you, that David showed to Mephibosheth. Show me that kindness. Come on, and so let's read on and see what he says here. Many warned him to be, keep quiet. He was crying all the more, have mercy on me, you son of David. So people in the church were telling him to shut up. He was too exuberant. What is wrong with you? Just go sit and be quiet and live with your pain. No, no. Again, it's, it's like Acts chapter 3, at the gate, beautiful Faith has got to come along and get you. The gate signifies that there's something on the other side that's for you. Whosoever will say to this mountain, 
this be thou removed, be, be this gate, be thou removed and cast in the sea, not, not doubting his heart, but believe the things that he says will come to pass. The man will have whatsoever he saith. God's promise in Mark eleven twenty three says, whosoever can have whatsoever, if you'll just speak it out of your mouth and believe it. Speak it out of your mouth until you believe it and then keep talking it. Come on, just like the woman in Mark chapter 5, verse 25, she was sick, spent all of her money on doctors and grew no better, but grew worse. She had prescription bottles all over the counter, but they weren't working. They weren't making her healthy. She was putting her trust in the doctors. She was putting her trust in the pharmacy. She was putting her trust in all the medicine and in no ways got better, but grew worse. But then she heard about Jesus. And then she began to say, and when you read in the Greek, she kept saying, if I could just but touch the prayer shawl. I read in Malachi chapter four that there'd be healing in his beams, that there'd be healing in that prayer shawl. And if I could just get a hold of that prayer shawl, I could get my healing. And of course, you know the story. She pressed through a huge crowd to get what she wanted. And this is what happened. This is what is ha happening in the church. Don't be a spectator anymore. When you get back here, refuse to be a spectator and don't fall back into some routine where you're believing nothing and hoping you'll get a little bit of encouragement so that you can struggle through the next week. Believe God. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Believe for the victory. Believe that you believe what he said in Romans 8 31, that he gave his life for you. How much more freely will he give you all things? Peter one, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He wants you blessed. He wants you healed. He wants you to walk highly favored so that you've got something to give other people. You see, we can't give people what we haven't got. We can't teach people what we don't know. That's why lots of times if a preacher gets up and preaches a message he heard from somebody else and it's not his, it doesn't change anybody's life because it, because you can't give away what you haven't got. Amen. Okay, so. Blind Bartimaeus, where are you? They told him to shut up, but he cried louder. Have mercy. He called out covenant kindness. He didn't call for judgment because mercy supersedes judgment. Mercy is more powerful than judgment. And God says he prefers mercy. God is a merciful God. And so here's Bar Bartimaeus crying out for mercy and ignoring the crowd Make this an individual quest for you. Yes, we are the church. Yes, we are the body of Christ. But when you come in here, man, you come, you come desperate. You come hungry. Faith isn't pretty. Faith is desperate. Read every miracle that happened in the word of God. Even Peter and Mark in Matthew 14, walking on the water. Jesus, he said, Jesus, if it's you, bid me come. And he got out and he was walking along on the water really well, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. And then when he looked at the circumstances of his life, he began to sink. That's a powerful truth. When you're looking at the circumstances of your life, you're sinking. When you're look, looking at Jesus, you're walking. Put him, make him the center of your life now. Learn something from this two months of being unable to fellowship with, with one another and all of this. And they wound it up so tight. Now they're trying to find a way to relax it without looking bad, without admitting that they were wrong. And so that's why it's taking so long to wind down. Anyway, Many, many, many warned him, shut up, shut up. You, 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 you're, just too you're just too extreme. No, be extreme. When you get back in here, be extreme. When praise and worship start, if they're not going fast enough, jump up and jump right in with, I'm telling you, get radical. Come on. Why? Because he sends out the, he sends the praisers. We looked at Caleb last week. Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. 
The first thing that he was was a praiser. The second thing that he was was he liked to fight. He understood Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. He said, give me that mountain full of giants. He didn't say, please remove the giants first. He said, no, no. Like he said in Numbers chapter 14, those giants are meat to me. They're bread to me. I, 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 get, I get nourished when I'm fighting devils. Amen. So he said, many warned him and said, keep quiet, keep quiet. But he cried out all the more. Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man to him. He said, look at this. Now look, this is how the crowd will shift. This is why you don't follow crowds. You follow Jesus. This is how quick the crowd shifts. Now they're saying, have courage. Get up. He's calling for you. The same people that were telling him to shut up. And I'm saying, hey, (laughs) because Jesus acknowledged him. He threw off his beggar's coat. And jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him and said, what will, what, what is it that I can do for you? But see, the law of faith is hooked up with the law of confession. He had to verbalize what he wanted in order to get it done. It was obvious that he was blind. He had the the blind beggar's uh, coat that he was wearing on the side of the road, which identified him as a, just like the lepers had outfits that identified them. He was identified as a blind beggar hopeless he was hopeless until hope came then jesus answered unto him what do you want me to do for you well it's obvious but he needs to say this rabboni the blind man said unto him i want to see jesus said unto him go look at this go Your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and begin to follow Jesus on the road. His confession was required. And when he confessed his desire, like the woman with the issue of blood, when I read that story and I read it, I've read it a thousand times at least. And I realized that this woman is risking her life. She's, she's got a, she's, she's has an issue of blood. She might as well be a leper. She's not allowed out in public. She's pushing her way through a crowd. And Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, is right there. The guy that could have her stoned to death on the spot is right there. And she reached in and touched the garment. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, Jesus turned to him and said, daughter, your faith. Listen to this. See, because this is all done. The early church believed it. And they, they even raised the dead and thought that there was something wrong with the church down the street if they didn't do that. Now think about where we are, you know, but again, I can look at Mark chapter two, or I can look at, look at Luke chapter five and verse 17, when Jesus was in Capernaum in his house and he was teaching the word of God. And the Bible says that, that the, the, the power of God was present to heal them all, but there were doctors and lawyers and Pharisees and people from all over Galilee and Jerusalem and everywhere. A huge crowd of unbelievers got together And the Bible says that the power of God was present to heal them all, but only one person got healed. Which one? The one whose buddies ripped off the roof and dropped down the beam of light and loaded them down in the front of Jesus. He got healed. And so it is. So it is in a crowd in a church. Let's not be a crowd. Let's be a church. Let's be the ones that come in here and get empowered and jacked up to go out and lay hands on the sick and see them recover. Not to run around with a mask on, hiding under a bed, waiting for some pandemic to pass over. 
this, that's not the church. But, see, because there's only two forces out there. There's faith and there's fear. And they both produce. Job chapter 3, Job said, What I have always feared has finally come upon me. Wouldn't it be much better if he had to believe God? He could have said, What I've always believed God for has finally come upon me. Come on, it says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 10. You know, it says that after he had patiently, Hebrews chapter 6, rather, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Faith goes after the promises. Faith does not sit on the premises. Faith does not hide in unbelief. So fear and faith, they're both out there. They're, it, it, and it's an emotion on one hand, energy and motion. But on the other hand, it's a spirit. The, the Bible talks about the spirit of faith. And Timothy 1.7 talks about the spirit of fear. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, one of power, one of love, and a soundness in our mind. We hope this message has encouraged you in your relationship with the Lord. For more information and ministry resources, we invite you to visit our website at www.newcovenantchurch.ca. We look forward to you joining us next time as we continue to live victoriously.